next couple of weeks, we're being treated to the biggest show this side of the Atlantic. The National Political Presidential Nominating Conventions are two-week, two-party festivals of red meat speechifying and hats pimped out like parade floats. How, from the loftiness of President George Washington, did we ever get to this? Douglas Brinkley, who's written books about Presidents Reagan, Ford, and both Roosevelt's, among other volumes, is there for both conventions, and here he takes a lap around conventions that were and might yet be. The Constitution doesn't even provide for political parties, much less political party nominating conventions. How did we get to this? The founding fathers were very worried about the uh, two-party system, so much so that in 1800, when Thomas Jefferson was warring with John Adams and each was just beating up on each other in the press, uh, the head of the former Continental Congress, a man named Charles Thompson, uh, burned the founding minutes of our country because he said we'll never be able to survive if these elections are this brutal if we don't all get behind a president once they're elected. But what Thompson's point was, we've got to make presidents a cult. And once they win, we get behind them. That's why our capital is Washington, D.C., and we have presidents on our currency, and we define our eras as the Reagan years or you know the Obama years. Well, the first, I think, actual political nominating convention was in 1832 with the short-lived anti-Masonic party, not around much longer. There, there became some interesting parties, like the, the third parties, as we call them today, but the Know-Nothing Party in the 19th century was anti-Mormon and anti-Catholic. And, of course, you have third-party movements. So the Bull Moose Party in 1912 with um, Theodore Roosevelt, so that was the most successful third-party movement. But by and large, we are now, since the, you know, the Civil War, it's about being a Republican or a Democrat, and we usually only have two real choices. You know, this year, the Green Party and Libertarian might end up playing spoiler roles in a close election. Pretty soon the parties thought, we should get our act together and make this work like a well-oiled machine. I think, Pat, the big turning point was the advent of television. Um, in 1952, when Taft, Robert Taft and Dwight Eisenhower were fighting for the Republican nomination, CBS brought cameras into that process, and it was very boring and ugly. It was smoke-filled rooms, wrangling, wheeling, and dealing. It didn't look visually great. And after 52, both parties started recognizing that the conventions have to be coronation that they have to be choreographed. And so, you know, you get the birth of not just telegenic candidates, but also this idea that the, the sausage factory of politics takes place during the primary and caucus season. And by the time you get to these July conventions, they're, they're at least inside the arena, supposed to be very uh, scripted. But of course, as we know from Chicago in 1968, what goes on outside a convention sometimes um, can be very disruptive and harder for a political party to control. The process of, of caucuses and primaries that's being so criticized now was actually a great step forward in reform from those smoke-filled rooms. I do think the primary and caucus system, with all of its problems, 
it generally works. Um, the downside about it is we seem to be in permanent running for president mode, and that has uh, is raising some eyebrows. I mean, why are we spending billions in, in this long a process? Is there a way to shorten it? But every time people talk about that, it's like saying, let's, let's get rid of the Electoral College. Um, it, it's good for an op-ed piece in a newspaper, but in the end, we keep doing what we're doing right now. We're trying to avoid contested um, you know, conventions because it's just not good for the party. Um, however, this year with Donald Trump being such a polarizing figure, there were people praying for a contested convention, hoping Trump wouldn't be able to amass enough um, delegates. Whether you like it or not, it's going to be Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, uh, and the big, the big thing is who will be the vice presidential nominee. And it is the only drama left, but the vice presidents, many do become president. I mean, just think about since World War II, I mean, Nixon was Dwight Eisenhower's vice president, and Johnson was Kennedy's vice president, and George Herbert Walker Bush was Reagan's VP. Um, I mean, there, there, this does, you know, it is a, a uh, the quickest route to becoming president. It is to be vice president. Some of the notable conventions, um, the 1924 Democratic Convention with more than 100 ballots, I think the one that for, for most people dwells in memory, is 1968 in Chicago. You had protests in the streets of Chicago as Chicago police were beating protesters who were yelling, the whole world's watching. And inside the convention, you had Senator Abe Ribicoff and Mayor Richard Daley, nominally from the same party, going at each other. With George McGovern as President of the United States, we wouldn't have to have Gestapo's tactics in the streets of Chicago. Oh, it's an unbelievable spectacle what happened in 1968. Um, it was just mayhem in the streets. And inside, even Dan Rather, who was working as a reporter for CBS, got roughed up within the convention. So when we talk about conventions that didn't work well, Chicago is the one that comes to mind. So some of the stars of tomorrow, meaning future presidents, may be on hand um, in Cleveland and Philadelphia. But however, many Republicans are kind of boycotting Donald Trump. They don't want to be seen there. They don't want to be in the photo op with their party's nominee. And that itself is quite bizarre. I mean, the Governor Kasich of Ohio is intimating he won't even go to his own convention if he doesn't want to be contaminated standing next to Donald Trump. I haven't seen that before, where people of a major political party are embarrassed to be seen with candidates. The 1964 convention in San Francisco, where moderate Republicans battled with Goldwater Republicans, uh, and it, it was vehement and even ugly on the floor and, and of, of the convention, of the Cow Palace. These extremists feed on fear, hate, and terror. They encourage disunity. President Eisenhower said it was unpardonable. He said he was deeply ashamed by what he was seeing. You just picked a very important point. Because um, not, not only did protesters go after the opposition there, but they were booing and hissing and threatening reporters. That Trump has gone after the media so hard, and sometimes by name, that they may be being uh, bullied, harassed, or denunciated uh, because Trump has made uh, journalists 
part, uh, enemies. That's part of his plan uh, of, um, you know, that everything he does is the media's fault. You mentioned speeches by future candidates, but are, have there been any great convention speeches by the actual candidate? The only one that comes first to my mind is William Jennings Bryan in 1896, his cross of gold speech as the Democrats were split. And the parlors everywhere, we will answer the demand for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. I think Obama's was good in 2008. They're all very well written, but they're so choreographed. You know, you're not making a speech as a president. Uh, you're simply a candidate. And most of these become their well-honed speech. For example, Bernie Sanders has a very fine speech he delivers. He's done it hundreds of times, and it allows him to perfect it. But they're kind of set speeches almost by the time they get to conventions. And in this case, you don't want to be usurped. I mean, if you're Donald Trump, you don't want somebody out delivering oratory. You don't want to be seen as second fiddle. When um, FDR got polio and he ended up endorsing Al Smith of New York at Madison Square Garden, FDR was in a wheelchair. Al Smith thought, oh, well, I'll have him give the convention speech. And FDR stole the house. He got a one-hour standing ovation. And the next day, in a New York Times said, uh, forget Al Smith, Franklin Roosevelt's the new political star. You used the word infomercial, and so did Ted Koppel. You know who was the first one to really say that before Koppel was Edward R. Murrow. He said, uh, I'm a journalist. I don't want to be used by a political party. Now, he changed. He showed up to do some broadcasting in 1960 in Los Angeles when John F. Kennedy got the nomination. But Murrow's point was being we're being manipulated and reporters shouldn't be that. Um, nevertheless, for, for I work with CNN as a presidential historian, and these are big rating moments for cable TV or the networks. You're hoping uh, everybody tunes in, and it's a big commercial ad buy time. And also the summer months, it's sort of a dead zone, the summer seasons. Journalism, particularly television, has become big business. And so they're, anything they could do to attract a lot of voters, Trump has been claiming, I'm going to make this an entertainment spectacle. More rock bands, more comedians. I don't know how many rock bands and comedians want to tie their kite to Donald Trump, but his, his attempt is to make it kind of a casino-like show. It's all become entertainment in some ways. Then there is the unexpected dramas. I mean, in Cleveland, people are planning the protests for months. And so I think the camera action on what's going on outside the convention halls are really going to be more interesting and, all, and also more dangerous than what's going on inside. Well, what do you think is going to happen inside? See, here's the problem the Democrats face, boredom, um, that it doesn't become like a one big C-SPAN show. Is there a, any possibility or the Republicans concerned that a Cleveland 2016 could be their equivalent of Chicago 1968. Big time. That's what the problem is. This, there is a, you know, only so much Cleveland security can do. When you're, you, it's going to be how many protesters show up. Um, and it's the, the armed confrontation, the kind of feeling of police armed. And then on one side are these Trump supporters, and then the other side are Black Lives Matter or 
um, progressive movement, and that mixing on the streets, um, as we see, it just takes one incident to start a riot. And um, at all costs, for, that Cleveland's doing their best to try to prevent that. So it can be done, but just one or two angry kooks can really make um, mayhem, uh, you know, anarchy. Uh, you mentioned the immense impact of television on the way the conventions are conducted. What about the impact of social media, which has been emergent in the last half dozen years? Giant, let's say, um, let's say Philadelphia. If there's some event that occurs outside of the convention hall. There are now people with phones that are going to take pictures. Well, previous eras, nobody has a picture of that. Cameras are inside the convention. Now, if there's a real riot, obviously cameras will get trained on it. But now every little strange photo will start appearing on our television and on throughout social media. And so it could escalate things because of, you know, what we used to be missed by the cameras now are being picked up by people's cell phones. And that makes, I think, our world more interesting, but it also has a chance for one, one photo of a policeman hitting somebody with a, you know, a billy club could uh, end up really um, creating more problems than it normally would. If you had the chance to go watch any political convention since that first one in 1832, what one do you think you might want to go back and spy on? Boy, what an interesting question. I would have liked to have been in Los Angeles in 1960 when John F. Kennedy, becoming the youngest elected president, was able to take away the Democratic nomination from people like Lyndon Johnson and Stuart Symington, um, Hubert Humphrey. The fact that Kennedy was using television, and it was sort of, in my mind, the beginning of a new era, that's the one I would pick. Oh, beautiful, far heroes proved. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Todd G. Levin. The William Jennings Bryan speech is reread by Bryan himself in 1921. The 1964 GOP convention speaker is Governor Nelson Rockefeller, and there's archival sound from the conventions from YouTube. The U.S. Marine Corps Band played Ruffles and Flourishes and Hail to the Chief, and yes, that is Ray Charles singing America the Beautiful. I am Pat Morrison. America! Skies, far amber waves of grain.